Well, last week we began our journey into the epistle of the Ephesians by giving a little bit of background, some history, and a brief overview of the book, and spent a bit of time learning of the human author, the Apostle Paul. We referred to Ephesians as the heavenly bank account for the believer. It's a book of promises. It's a book of unending riches and glorious truths for the believer. And what's more intriguing is when we realize the fact that the Apostle Paul writes this book of such rich blessings while he is a prisoner in Rome. In chapter 6, Paul writes, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. So it's quite incredible to think that here the Apostle Paul is in chains in a prison in Rome, and the subject of the epistle is all of the incredible blessings that the believer has in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we make our way through Bear in mind that these truths are so rich and so profound that not even chains of imprisonment could keep the Apostle Paul from writing them. While in prison, Paul writes of the glory of God's grace in Ephesians he, that he freely bestows on us. In Ephesians, he writes that we have a great redemption and forgiveness and that that's according to the riches of the grace of God which he lavishes on us. While he's in chains, Paul speaks of how we've obtained an inheritance and how God was rich in mercy, how he's great in love, and how by grace he made us alive. These aren't the kind of things you would expect to hear from a prisoner, and yet they're so glorious that this is the subject of Paul's writing. These are the truths that even the darkest of circumstances should not and could not Hinder, And I think that as we go through Ephesians, you'll find that when we're in the darkest seasons in our life, that we too can go back to the book of Ephesians and lay hold of these blessings at that, and that they will overshadow whatever darkness we find in our own life. I mean, who wouldn't want to read a letter such as this? And of course, the Apostle Paul doesn't miss a beat in the very first verse. He gives us some profound truths. And so if you want to turn with me, if you aren't there already, to Ephesians 1.1. That'll be our text this morning. And just follow along as I read that. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, we have the tendency to kind of skip over the introduction to letters. It's common. We do it in most material that we read. Admittedly, I tend to be one of those guys that looks at the preface and just flips past that, and I don't read much of that information, and then I have to catch myself. But if we were to do that in this letter, we would miss some of the most profound truths from the very beginning. Paul begins his by letting his audience know that it's by God's will alone that he's an apostle, and so he's establishing his credentials, and his credentials aren't of earthly source, but of a heavenly 
source. And so it is with the authority of God that he writes to the church. It's the will of God that made him apostle, and it's by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he writes the epistle to the Ephesians. And so in our verse this morning, what you'll find is going to be three distinct characteristics of every true believer. And that really is going to summarize the very identity of the Christian. We understand talk of identity today, right? We hear it all the time. It's a word that you can scarcely go a week or two weeks without hearing. Now, it can either mean identity as in the fact of being who or what a person or thing is, or as it's more commonly used in our society nowadays, it's the characteristics that determine who or what a person or thing is. And so in our society, we hear people identified with all sorts of modifiers. Many in society identify each other based on what political position they hold or what scientific community they believe in. People are characterized in our world today not over their general character but because of one view or one opinion and that they take on as their whole identity. It's not the way we should do that, but that is the way we see it most frequently. It's an obviously wrong way to view one's identity, but this is how we've come to the place in our society where we get people who identify as things like gay Christians or deconstructing Christians or liberal Christians or conservative Christians or white Christians or black Christian. But there's no such thing as a modified Christian. If you have to modify or alter or adjust or amend the word Christian before you use it to describe yourself, then in reality, you probably just aren't Christian. You're whatever the modified word is. Sorry, you're whatever the modifier is, but you're certainly not Christian. You either follow Christ and his teachings or you don't. You either submit to Christ as Lord or you don't. You either pursue obedience to the teachings of Christ as they're given in the Bible, or you don't. Very simply, you're either Christian or you're not. You're not a fill-in-the-blank something Christian. You're just simply either Christian or you're not. There's no in-between. There's no modifier to Christian. There's no improvement on Christianity, and there can be no reduction on Christianity. There are only two forces in the world, good and evil. You either belong to heaven or you belong to hell. You're either children of mercy or children of wrath. And those are like oil and water. They can never mix. One's identity is rooted in whose he is. In other words, who you belong to is your identity. And so either you have a heavenly father and your identity Lies in that fact, or you belong to the father of lies, and your identity is found in that. Either you belong to Christ or you don't. And so here's the question, as a Christian, what is your identity? This is one of those very profound truths in our passage this morning. Every believer is told their identity in the very first verse. And so as a Christian, who are you? How do you describe yourself as a Christian? What does it mean to say, I am a Christian? Now I want to remind you 
that the letter to Ephesians is believed to have been a cyclical letter. It's believed that the anumensus, right, the one who dictated Paul's letter, actually left a space where it says, who are at Ephesus. And that was intentional with the expectation that as the letter was circulated to other churches, that the church would fill in their own name there. This is just a theory, but it seems to fit the style of the writing and the way that the Apostle Paul speaks in the letter. It's a general letter, not just to Christians at Ephesus, but to all believers. We know that was common practice in the time to write cyclical letters. And so what this means is that the letter isn't merely just speaking to Christians in one particular area, but it's for all of us in all times. And it's not a letter to intellectuals or those with special education. It's not a letter to those with degrees or even the most mature Christians. It's a letter to every Christian in the church. And that's important because it means that the truths contained within this letter are meant to be understood by every Christian. They're meant to be contemplated and believed by every Christian. They're meant to be understandable for the ordinary, everyday Christian who comes to church week in and week out, just like you and me. And likewise, as we talk about identity and he gives us what this identity is, there's the expectation that we're meant to walk in that identity because of who God says we are. And so we're going to see that in our passage this morning. To the saints... The Apostle Paul says, this is to whom Paul addresses his letter. He doesn't address the letter to anyone, not to everyone, but specifically to the saints. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints. So then the question is, well, who are these saints? Are you a saint? Who are the saints? Which ones are the saints? What is a saint? Now, when we talk about saints, most people tend to think of the Catholic Church, right? Common. We hear the word saint used over and over in the Catholic Church, and heaven forbid we ever fall prey to the utter absurdity of the Roman Catholic Church. The idea that only the elite, the special, or those deemed worthy of the Roman Catholic Church are saints is not only preposterous, but you're going to see that it's in stark contrast to the scripture. It's really interesting, did a little bit of research on exactly what it takes to become a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. It's kind of a five-step process to being named a saint. First, you have to wait at least five years after your death. So before that, there's no hope of being a saint. After your death, Secondly, an investigation takes place in the Roman Catholic Church to see if you live the life of a servant according to the standards of the Roman Catholic Church. Basically, did you earn enough good earthly credits? If you pass that phase, then the next phase, the third phase, is that there has to be proof not only that you were holy according to the Roman Catholic Church's standards, but that you had, quote, heroic virtue whatever that means. I guess in reality, when you're just making up stuff, you can come up with whatever you want to come up with. You can be just as bizarre as you want. And after, you, after they decide whether you have heroic virtue or not, 
the next step is whether or not you have any verified miracles attributed to you. But here's a catch. Not while you're living. You have to be, it has to be proven that you have done a miracle only after you've died. Have you ever seen a dead man work miracles? No? Well, neither has anyone else. Dead men don't do miracles. So if somehow they decide that you have been doing miracles after you're dead, sounds like the making of a Roman Catholic horror zombie movie, but anyway, the last step is the canonization of the person. In other words, only then can they be declared a saint. Now, if you're wondering to yourself, well, if that's the way to become a saint, then who could? Well, that's a good question. That's the right questions, and the answer is no one. But the Catholic Church has it all wrong. The Apostle Paul addresses this very letter, not to the Roman Catholic Church, but to saints at the Church of Ephesus. And so clearly what the Apostle Paul had in mind is nothing like the Roman Catholic Church's idea of a saint. Really, to understand the New Testament idea of saint, we need to go back and look at the Old Testament. We understand and we remember that the temple was considered holy, right? That the tabernacle was considered holy, that the Sabbath is holy, and that God's chosen people were a holy people. Well, that's what it means to be a saint. It means to be holy, to be set apart. Saints are those who have been set apart by God. These are Christians. We've all probably heard or have heard of someone saying, and it's particularly common in the South, things like, well, I follow Jesus, but I ain't no saint. They'll say it just like that. I ain't no saint. Well, there couldn't be a more untrue statement than that, because if you are a Christian, you are a saint. And Paul tells us that clearly here. In fact, that is your identity. You are a saint. As some have said, this is the irreducible minimum of what constitutes a Christian, that you are a saint. You have been set apart, not of your own works, but by God. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Have you ever really considered that? I mean, we hear about the temple in the Old Testament and how God's glory fills the temple. And here in the New Testament, we're told that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Whom you have from God and that you are not your own. For you have been bought for a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You are a saint. You have been set apart. You're not like other men any longer. You're different by the work of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? We have it again there. 
Romans 12.1-2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. See, there's a stark contrast. You're holy. Don't conform to what's unholy, the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. And so, lest we get caught up in what is God's will for my life, it tells us that as we renew our mind by hearing the scriptures, studying the scriptures, that we will prove what the will of God is in our life. And what is that? His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Why are you to offer your bodies as a holy and pleasing sacrifice to God? Well, quite simple, because you are a saint. And in reality, the church is a collection of saints. Saints, Unlike the Catholic Church, you're not a saint because of anything you've done. You're not a saint because you were able to work hard enough. That you were, You're not a saint because, like Teresa, you were able to do enough good works. But you're a saint because of what Christ has done and Christ alone. You've been made righteous through faith in Christ. It isn't your own righteousness, but it's Christ's righteousness attributed to you. Have you ever thought of yourself as a saint? This is what the Apostle Paul teaches you are. This is your identity. And more importantly than anything outwardly, when we think of a saint, it's that the fact that you're a saint inwardly. You've been made new, right? You're not just a dusted-off old version of yourself. You're a new creation. The old man, the sinful man, is dead, gone, and you're a new creature in Christ. Saint, one called out, one separated. So we do need to ask ourselves, are we indeed separated? Our identity as is as a saint, are we separated from the world or do we still look like the world? Do we gossip with the world? Do we drink with the world? Do we engage in the sins of the world? Or are we, as Scripture testifies, in the world but not of the world? Are we noticeably different? Can we tell that we are indeed holy and set apart? I know I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys are faithful. But there are some Christians who, or rather some who profess to be Christian, But in reality, I think the devil himself couldn't tell any difference between them and his own children. The true believer is first and foremost a saint. That work is firstly an inward work, but it always produces an outward fruit. This is why we hear things like gay Christianity and all of these perverse perverse modifiers attached to Christianity. Those aren't saints of God. Somehow they had an emotional experience or they like the idea of following a religion, but they're following their own religion. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be 
brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not conform to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You are holy. And then, you, and then we strive to demonstrate that holiness in all of our behavior. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones hit the nail on the head when he said, how did the early church have such a profound impact on the pagan world? How? It was because they were what they were. It was the quality of their life. They had power because they were truly Christian. Well, we can tell the difference between the godless who profess Christianity and the one who loves Christ, right? They're not perfect by any stretch of imagination, but they are different. You can tell they're set apart. You can tell there's something holy about them. And I would argue that we don't live in any darker times than the early church, and surely if those few saints could impact much of the known world, and they did, but they didn't just impact the world, they brought much of the pagan world to its knees before Almighty God. And if they could do that, then surely Christians today ought to have an impact. Much of the church today has so little impact on the world because they're too much like the world, and they're too little like the Christians found in Scripture. We see this all the time, right? Too many in the church today have traded saint for secular, holy for hellish, prayer for profanity, reverence for ridicule. And if not that, then they go to the far other side where it's legalism, where you have to earn and keep the grace of God. No, we don't earn our salvation. We don't keep our salvation. We don't earn our identity as a saint. We don't deserve our identity of a saint. It's all of God. And that's meant to be made evident in our lives. I mean, again, you guys are faithful. We all know each other and but I want you to really contemplate, have you really thought of yourself as a saint? We often speak of the need to repent of our sins. We often speak of pursuing holiness. And those are right and those are good things. But you also need to know that when God sees you, he sees you through Christ. And you are a saint. You still stumble and fall. We all do. We still sin. But here's the difference. A saint repents, gets back up, runs to Christ, and Christ forgives. Oh, he forgives. And every morning the scripture tells us that what? He makes his mercies new, right? So you are a saint and you are a sinner all at once. Martin Luther understood this when he used the Latin phrase, simul justice et peccator. Spoke about that this week. Simul meaning simultaneously, and it, we know that, right? Et tu brute, and, and peccator meaning sinner, sinner. So you're just and you're a sinner at the same time. There's a conflict between the heavenly and the earthly. You're a saint and you're a sinner, but don't forget that you're a saint. 
the tendency of churches who value and hold repentance as a gift of God can sometimes go too far to the other side and they forget that they're saints, that they are made holy, not because they repent, because even repentance is a gift of God, not your own works. But this is your identity as a Christian. You are a saint. Think about that. God called you out from amongst all the others. You're holy. You're separated unto God. There's a purpose. Don't ever forget this truth as we navigate the sinful world around us. As things look like they're just increasingly getting crazier. And they are. As we believers find more pressure from the world around them. As the government oversteps its bounds continually. Remember that you are a saint. And there are great privileges and riches that come with being a saint. And we'll get to a lot of those as we make our way through. But you're a saint, and so that means that you're different. As I was uh, thinking about this through late last night, I was reminded of a scene in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And if you haven't figured it out by now, I really love Pilgrim's Progress. And so I want to just read to you a small scene, because I think it very well depicts the reality of a saint in the midst of a city that is opposed to God. Now, Bunyan describes a scene where there's a road that leads to the celestial city, and we know this, right? Most of us have been exposed to Pilgrim's Progress to some degree or another. So he's on his way to the celestial city, heaven, and he goes right through what's called the Vanity Fair. Let me read this for you. Therefore, at this fair, every type of merchandise was sold, including houses, lands, trades, places, honors, promotions, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, and pleasures. There were also delights of all sorts, such as prostitutes, madams, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and much more. Now he's speaking in terms of what the world values. And moreover, at this fair, there is the constant entertainment of jugglers, cheats, games, plays, clowns, mimics, tricksters, rogues, and many other amusements. Here are also to be found a number of free offerings, including thefts, murders, adulteries, perjures, all available in various shades of blood. A little further, we notice that when Pilgrim gets to the Vanity Fair in the book, that they are viewed as peculiar. Instantly and right away, these worldly people recognize that there's something not quite right about Pilgrim, Christian and his faithful friend. Now, as I said, these pilgrims have to pass through the fair, okay? There's no way around. They have to go through, and so they did. But especially note that even as they entered the fair from the very beginning, the people were described as being disturbed by them. The whole town itself was turned into a commotion around them, and there were several reasons for this. Let me continue reading a little bit for you. Namely, first, the pilgrims were dressed with a type of clothing that was quite different from the attire 
of those who traded at the fair. Now, if you're familiar, book, familiar with the book, you'll remember that at the beginning, after Pilgrim found salvation, God clothed them with new robes. And so this is the clothing you're referring to. Therefore, the people of the fair stared at them with astonishment. Some of them said they were fools, and some called them bedlams, that is, madmen, while others derided them as outlandish men or foreigners. So they noticed that there was something about their countenance that was not like their own. Secondly, as the great crowd wondered at their clothing, so they were similarly curious about their speech. For few could understand what they said. The pilgrims spoke their native tongue, the language of Canaan, but those who managed and frequented the fair were the men who spoke the language of this world. So that throughout the fair, their foreign speaking made them appear as barbarians in their midst. Do you see that? Not only were they, their countenance was holy and set apart and as a saint and different, but their language was distinguishable as well. Well, the story goes on and says, Third, and this did especially amuse the merchants at the fair, these pilgrims placed a little value on all of their goods. Remember all those goods that we read earlier? Murders and strife and envy and cheat and games and prostitutes and all these things. These pilgrims placed little value on all of their goods. They did not even care to browse at them. And if they were solicited to buy such items, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry out, Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity. And at the same time, they would look upward, signifying that their trade and commerce were with heaven. This is what a saint looks like. Not perfect. But we are consumed with the things of this world. We look different from this world. We speak differently than this world. And it's noticeable. And so Pilgrim and his companion were saints. They were set apart. They were holy. They looked different. They spoke differently. And they fled from temptation. Did you get that? When they were offered the things of the world, they stuck their fingers in their ears and they cried out to heaven. They fleed temptation. Unlike the world. In the end of this part of this story, one of the pilgrims, faithful by name, was held prisoner. They were both captive, and faithful was killed by the world. And so Christian, the main character, he escapes, and he continues on his journey with the hope that he'll see his friend again when he gets to the celestial city. But faithful did just that. He remained faithful even though he was killed by the world, and we understand that so many men and women of God have become martyrs for the sake of truth and love of Christ. The world should see Christians as they are, saints. They should see that we're set apart, and yes, they'll deride you if you don't entertain them. They'll deride you if you don't join into the conversations that we know we shouldn't join into. We don't participate in the godless things that are even very tempting to us all at times. No, they should see that we're different, and we as saints should continually, like pilgrim and faithful, put our fingers in our ears and cry out to God to give us strength and to 
stay away from these temptations. Straight away in our passage this morning, we come to the next of the grand truths. We see that the first and greatest truth, I think, just in the very first sentence, is the fact that you are saints. Well, the next one, like the first, profound in every way, to the saints. Well, what about to the saints? To the saints who are faithful, Paul says. Now, this isn't faithful as being trustworthy, okay? It's faithful as in one who believes. The saint believes in Christ. He trusts in Christ. He lives in Christ. And this is contrasted against those who do not believe the world. 2 Corinthians 6, chapter 6 says this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Of course, the answer is nothing. We are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So saints are not like those who are still in the world. They are faithful. Saints believe Again, we're not talking about perfection, but saints are ones who trust in Christ. They're inseparable, right? You can't be a saint if you aren't trusting in Christ, and if you aren't trusting in Christ, then surely you can't be a saint. The reality is everyone puts faith in something, right? Everyone puts faith in something. The godless put their faith in wealth or in power or in politics or tempted to call it pseudoscience these days, but science... They put their faith in movements and revolutions. They turn to nature. They turn to health. They put their faith in the lust of the eyes, the flesh, and the pride of life. But this is not true for the Christian because the Christian is faithful, believing in the death and the life and the resurrection of Christ. It's faith, you know, like the faith that Thomas lacked. Have you ever heard of doubting Thomas? Let me read a little bit in John 20, 24, but this is the way faith is used here in our passage. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And so this is after he's resurrected, right? So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and I can put my finger in place of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them, and Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood there in their midst and said, Peace be with you. I would probably need that reassurance as well if someone came through the wall, the door shut. And so he calms them down, and then he says to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach Hear your hand and put into my side. Remember, he was pierced in the side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. This is faithful. Do not be unfaithful, be faithful. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? 
Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. To the saints who are faithful, Paul writes. To the saints who believe, Paul writes. To the saints who have not seen and believe. That's you. You believe as saints of God, as ones who have separated in the resurrected Christ without seeing. And Jesus himself says, Blessed be the ones who believe not having seen. A Christian is a saint and a Christian is full of faith, faithful, believing in the promises of God through Christ, believing in the perfect life of Christ, believing in the atoning death of Christ, believing in the resurrection power of Christ, and believing that one day Christ will return and he'll make all things new. Saints believe. These are just fundamentals. You can't be a Christian if you aren't a saint. We said that, right? But that is by God's work. We need to remember it's by God's work and not our own. You can't be a Christian if you aren't faithful. In other words, you can't be a Christian if you aren't believing in Christ. But beyond believing in this way, it also implies that we believe and that we keep the faith. In other words, we're loyal. We cling to the teachings of Scripture as though our very lives depend upon it. We warn others of the judgment to come because we believe that he's coming again. We defend the faith because we believe. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God. Who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. Verse 12 reads, Let no one look down on your youthfulness. Now this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the young Timothy. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself to be an example of those who believe. This is Paul's admonition to Timothy that he demonstrate what is true about himself, that he is a saint by the way he lives. The Christian, by God's wonderful grace, is a saint because of the finished work of Christ and is given the gift of faith. And then the Christian's empowered after you've been given the gift of faith, you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to be faithful, demonstrating that faith through your life. And the words that the Christian speaks, the way they dress, the way they carry themselves are all evidences of God's great riches in the Christian life. This is the identity of a Christian. I don't know if you've ever really considered this depth of teaching just in an opening statement that we so often pass by, but this is your identity. This is who you are. And this never changes. A true Christian is a saint, and a saint is filled with faith. A saint and a sinner at the same time. Christians are saints because of Christ and are saints in Christ. And this leads us to the last part of our passage, in Christ Jesus. Christians are faithful in Christ Jesus. 
The book of Acts chapter 17 and verse 28 says it this way, for in him we live and move and exist. Have you ever thought about that? Your very life, your very life exists in Christ. You're living, you're moving, your very being is because of Christ. It goes on to say, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. You were dead in your trespasses, but now you are alive. Well, you didn't make yourself alive, right? I didn't make myself alive. No dead man can revive themselves. It requires an outside force, much like the man who needs a doctor to shock his heart to restart it, except in this case, it goes far beyond that because the spiritual condition is far worse. We don't need a shock. We need a brand new heart. The old one is dead, it's rotten, it's unsalvageable. And in reality, for the saint, God reaches down and he makes it completely new. And so your very life is rooted and founded and grounded in Christ. We're in Christ because we're joined with him. In Ephesians chapter 4, when we get there, we're told that there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So every good thing that you have, you have because you are in Christ. You're in because of God's, you have because of God's grace. Just think about that. Doesn't that God deserve our love, our affection, our adoration. And I would ask the question, is God precious to you? If you have your very life, your very being in Christ, is Christ truly precious to you? He is to all those who are truly Christian. And certainly that value would grow as we mature. But Christ is precious to the saint. He's precious to the faithful. It's Christ himself who joins you to him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, this is all because of his mercy towards you, because of his great love with which he loved us. Because of his great love which he loved you, even when you were dead in transgressions, made you alive with Christ, raised you up with Christ and seated you with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, it speaks of Jesus being sinless, becoming sin on our behalf, all so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. We all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so again, your life is Rooted in Christ Jesus. John 7.38 says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And so your life is in Christ. Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. You are a saint 
This is the identity of a Christian. You are in Christ because you belong to Christ. You are his. And he is yours. You're his beloved child. And he is your precious Lord. He could have left you in your sins, but he didn't. He could have condemned you to eternal hell and been perfectly just, but he didn't. You were dead. You were like a dead, fallen branch off the vine, but he picked you up, he renewed you, he reattached you, and he made you alive. I think one commentator sort of sums up verse 1 and the truth contained in it very well when he says this. At the outset, the Apostle Paul describes his readers first in terms of their being marked by God to be his holy people. You were marked by God to be his holy people. Like pilgrim and like faithful, the question really is, to those around you, can they tell that you have been marked by God because you have been but also in terms of their believing response to the gospel, a response which is ultimately due to God's gracious initiative as well. And so at every step, God has done what you could not do. He made you alive. He gave you the faith to respond to a saving gospel. And then he keeps you because your very life is found in him. What a God. What a God. He does everything that we can't do for ourselves. And I wonder, I wonder if sometimes in especially our particular area of the church, if we don't forget how wonderful and gracious and loving God is. We like the academic stuff. We like the intellectual debates and conversations. We love apologetics. We love church history. But don't forget that you're a saint, that you're filled with faith and all of that because God loved you and was gracious to you and he calls you his own. Every Christian is a saint by God's grace. Every saint is faithful by God's grace and that faithfulness is rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.